0: My name's Richard, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I moved to Salford about, two and a half years ago now, um, with my then fiancé, who's now my wife, Natalie. Um, And uh, we moved up here because we felt like that's what God was saying for us to do. We were praying and and felt like he was saying we should move to Salford, so we did. And since we've been here, we've really been trying to work out what does it mean to follow God? um, What does it mean to kind of be part of his plans and his purposes? And we kind of didn't really know why we moved up here. And we're still trying to work that out. um, But we know that we're following God in that. Um, And actually, that's why I draw real inspiration from Paul's letters. And we're going to be looking at a passage in 1 Thessalonians today. Uh, And I draw real inspiration from Paul's letters. Because he was a man who was trying to follow after God. uh, Often in situations where he didn't expect to be. One minute he's here. One minute he's there crazy things going on, writing to a group of people um, who are likewise trying to work out what does it mean to be called by this God, what does it mean to be a part of his kingdom. Um, So hopefully there's something in here for us today that will help us to live our lives uh, in honour of this God who calls us. Um, So we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the chunk uh, verse 1 to verse 12. Verse 12. Um, But let me just remind you of some of the other things that we've looked at in 1 Thessalonians so far. Um, We started off by looking at uh, living the gospel in God. Neil started off the series looking at kind of what does it mean to be in God, to be found in him and to to have our identity in him, because actually everything else flows from that. And then last week as well, we looked at uh, living as models uh, in the power of the Spirit And the gospel came to uh, Thessalonica, and the power of the Spirit followed that as well. And what's it mean to be people of the Spirit working in in his power? So that's what we've looked at so far. And what we're going to look at today is um, how do we live straight, without spin, authentically, I guess, really? That's what we're going to look at today. So let me read chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We work night and day so that we may not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you, and pleading that you should lead a life worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Mm, Amen. It's a good passage, isn't it? So what's happening here? What's the context? Paul's talking very tenderly to a group of people that he spent a fair bit amount of time with, kind of pouring his life into them. The context, as as Paul sort of starts with, really, is that um, he'd had a bit of a rough deal. If you follow the book of Acts, you can kind of see the missionary journey that Paul went on. Going here, going there, being persecuted, being beat up, having a rough time, and then moving on. So he begins by saying that he already had to flee from his previous place, Philippi, already had a rough deal there, and he then moved on to the city of uh, Thessalonica. He had a pretty rough time, actually. So you could almost forgive him, actually for arriving at Thessalonica, already having had this rough time, and almost kind of wanting to make sure that it didn't happen again, wanting to make sure that things went a little bit more smoothly this time. Clearly, whatever he said there had quite um, an interesting impact. Clearly, some people believed in this gospel, but clearly there was a lot of opposition, otherwise he wouldn't have had to have fled from there. I wonder if he was tempted to maybe just change his message just a little bit so that there wasn't quite the disruption. It makes a big thing of of this gospel again. And uh, if you were here uh, last week, you would have heard Neil talk about what exactly the gospel is. And I think it's important that we just remind ourselves what the gospel is, because it seems to play a really important part in this passage. Paul is keen to say that although all this bad stuff happened in Philippi, when I came to you, I was still um, proud to proclaim this gospel. And at the end of chapter one let me just read to you how he explains what this gospel is. (coughs) He says, verse 9, for the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. And scholars say that this is actually the earliest presentation of the gospel. This really is what the gospel is. And it's not so much about what happens to us when we die, going to a a good place, going to heaven when we die, but this gospel is actually rooted in the now, in the present. It's about It's about turning from the things that that demand our attention and want to control us. I think Neil referenced um, the lottery, which was quite an interesting example, how people put their their hopes in the lottery that one day their numbers will come up and their lives will be transformed. They'll have all the money they need to do the things that they want to do. But actually, Paul says the gospel is about turning from idols to the true and living God. Not not a dead God, not a God of the past, but a God who's active now in the world today. And to serve him. And to wait for his son who will return. As Christians, we believe that, that God is in charge, that Jesus is in control. But often we look around and it doesn't look like that sometimes. You know, we see all the pain and all the misery and I've experienced a fair bit of that in my own life. But we have hope. That not only that Jesus is in control now, but that one day he will return to put everything right. And what we do now is we live in such a way where not only the things that we say, but the way that we live our lives actually demonstrate that Jesus is in charge. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's that anticipation. We live now like we hope we'll live when, when Jesus returns. So Paul has already kind of sketched out this view of the gospel. It's about turning to this living God, about living in such a way that honors him now. And his difficulties in Philippi don't discourage him from sharing that when he gets to Thessalonica. People seem to have responded really well. There seems to be this faith group in Thessalonica who really appreciate the stuff that Paul has said. But for one reason or another, it looks like he's had to flee from there as well. Not quite sure why, but he had to run. I'd imagine that as this group of Christians started to turn from idols and turn towards a living God, that actually people didn't like that. Because back then, idols were connected to family life, to work life. If you were part of a trade, if you were part of a guild, then you would worship the gods of that guild. If you were a blacksmith, then you would worship the god of the blacksmiths. So as these people um, kind of responded in faith to this gospel message, and they turned away from these idols, they had to actually turn away from large parts of society. That's actually, no, I'm not going to get involved with that anymore. And that seems to have got people's backs up. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. As you came to faith, there were certain things that you couldn't do anymore. There's certain things that you just you couldn't be involved with. Sometimes that really does get people's backs up. Because you're saying, I can't, I can't do that anymore. Seems to have uh, happened here. We're <clears throat> not quite sure the things um, that were said against Paul, but he seems to get quite defensive. He seems to be trying to almost justify himself. I'm not quite sure what was being said, but he does, uh, he does make a few interesting points. He says that he didn't—he didn't, he didn't come. Sorry, he did not come with words of flattery. So he didn't come trying to kind of win people over using clever words, um, you know, trying to kind of soothe people's egos. He came full of this courage that helped him to proclaim the gospel. And this idea of flattery—it's not really just about kind of um, trying to butter people up. It actually kind of involves trying to gain something for yourself. That's kind of what's happening with that word. That's, the, that's what's going on behind it. So he's sort of saying that I didn't come to you trying to, trying to gain something that I shouldn't have. He also says that when he, when, he, uh, when he arrived, the gospel that he proclaimed wasn't in vain. And kind of the idea behind that really was that, for want of a better word, The gospel wasn't impotent. It it wasn't kind of just nothingness. It actually had quite a powerful effect. So Paul arrives full of this courage, even though some pretty rough stuff had happened. And he says that he didn't use words of flattery. He didn't try to gain anything that he shouldn't have. And actually, the gospel wasn't impotent. It was powerful. All of us are here today because the gospel is powerful because it's still alive and working today, because God is still alive and working today in the world. So I would imagine, actually, that these people who were against Paul and were part of the reason for him fleeing Thessalonica were kind of saying things like, "Ah, it won't last, this gospel's not going to last. It may have had an initial impact, but it's not going to see, it's not going to go the distance. You people won't be Christians for very long. Or Paul was in it for himself. He was only trying to gain some money, maybe some compensation for, you know, some of the stuff that happened at Philippi. He was only in it for themselves, for himself. But Paul's not willing to accept that. He's not willing to let people say that sort of thing, those sorts of things about him, but also about his gospel and his God, ultimately. He's not prepared to let people say negative things about his living God. And he uses a couple of interesting analogies to kind of to talk about the antidote to these words of flattery and this kind of speaking and living in vain. He uses two really powerful analogies, one of a, uh, of a nurse and the other of a father. So in the first century, uh, and you still get it a little bit today, um, wet nursing was quite a big thing. Often mothers would pass their children on to other people to, uh, to nurse them. But Paul says that his conduct towards the Thessalonians was like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. That's a really, really powerful image of kind of motherhood, of care, of love, of compassion. Motherhood is really important. And it's really interesting that Paul isn't just using kind of masculine imagery for his work. He's not just talking about being bold and being powerful. He's talking in very kind of feminine qualities. It's like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. And actually, there are some images in the Old Testament where God is likened to a mother, like a mother hen covering her chicks with his wing. God is not just a masculine God. And Paul is not just operating within a kind of masculine ministry. It takes both male and female to represent God. He then uses an analogy of a father. Um, But it's probably not the analogy that I would expect him to use. I'm not sure that there were too many fathers in the first century who would have uh, kind of defined themselves as, as urging and encouraging and pleading. I think it would have been much more about kind of discipline and direction. But even the kind of the fatherly image that Paul uses is really kind of tender and loving. It's caring. It's, it's, he wants the best for his children, his spiritual children. And both of those are images of God as well. God is our loving father. But it's a redefined fatherhood. It's not a dominating or oppressive or authoritarian, although sometimes authority is needed. But it's this encouraging and pleading and urging that they would leave uh, lead a better life hmm. there's um there's another theme that kind of runs through this passage and um, it's kind of it's kind of who whose opinion really matters that's a basic question whose opinion really matters Paul makes reference to um, to God He says that he is approved by God. Later on, he says, God is our witness. It's clear to him that God's opinion of him, his ministry, and also the Thessalonians is really important. Later on in verse 10, he also says that God is his witness as well. But the other side of that is he's actually appealing to the Thessalonians as well. It's not just God's opinion that matters. There's almost this kind of, well, you know, you witnessed the power of our ministry. You heard what we said. You saw how we lived our lives. But also, ultimately, it's God who kind of judges what we do. Kind of goes back to the greatest commandment when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the best thing for us to do? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, you need to love God and you need to to love your, your neighbor as well. And you see both of these kind of being played out here. It's important that God is our ultimate judge because only he can judge us fairly. We often have a kind of skewed opinion of ourselves and other people. And and that can seem really scary, but I want to say that it's okay to trust God because he does judge fairly, but mercifully and graciously as well. And I'm grateful that uh, that nobody else Nobody else but God, in the end, will judge me. But if God is judging us right, and we're having a negative effect on the people around us, then that that kind of doesn't add up, does it? It's not just good enough to say, well, God is my judge, so I don't really care what you think. Paul is saying, yes, God is in ultimate control. But you've seen that. You've witnessed that. And it's important that the people around us are able to see not only the change in us, but the way that we serve our God. Paul talks about sharing our whole lives, not just sharing a gospel message. It's not just about saying, oh, did you know that God is alive and kicking? Did you know that Jesus died for my sins? If people can't see how that's actually affected our lives, then I guess it's kind of meaningless, isn't it? Word and action combined together. That kind of whole theme of remembering where Paul is appealing to the Thessalonians to to remember the work that's happened. It's a kind of theme that happens throughout the Bible, this whole idea of remembering, because we're just really forgetful sometimes. I'm really forgetful. And I'm convinced that one of the main parts of Christian discipleship is actually remembering who we are in God remembering what we've been called to do, remembering while we're here, because we get kind of caught up in, in just things that, that aren't quite as important. Memory is key to Christian discipleship. In a little bit, we'll, um, we'll have communion, and, and Mary will lead us in that. And that's, um, that's a really important part of remembering. We come and we have communion. We take the, uh, the juice and we take the bread and we remember that Jesus gave himself, his body and his blood for us. It's not that anything magical happens when we eat the, the bread and drink the juice, but it's this whole idea of remembering, that we continuously remember ourselves. And communion is such a, uh, such an amazing image of, uh, of remembering Jesus's death on the cross for us. As I was kind of, Researching and uh, and reading about this passage, I was really trying to get my head around it, and I kind of I wrote a little summary, and I like to just read it. This is kind of this is how I've understood the passage in its entirety. Because of the hardship Paul experienced before arriving at Thessalonica, he could have been tempted to use flattery to make sure his visit wasn't in vain. He could have even been tempted to seek some sort of compensation for the abuse that he'd experienced for those hardships. But because of the hope of the gospel, he had faith to talk and live straight. To talk and to live straight, thus showing his love for them. Thessalonians can attest to that, but more importantly, so can God. The evidence of which is their own lives lived in accordance with the gospel. And I thought it was important to mention that whole triad of faith, hope, and love. If you're here last week and the week before, Neil made quite a big deal of that. And it's a kind of triad that appears often in Paul's letters. He's always reminding people of this faith, hope, and love that we have because of the gospel, because God is alive and kicking in the world today. And it would have been really easy, with everything else that's going on here, You know, with the rough stuff that happened in Philippi, being chased out of Thessalonica, and all the bad things that people are saying about Paul, for him to lose this faith, hope, and love. And that's a real challenge for us, isn't it? It is really, really easy to lose that faith, hope, and love when we see the circumstances around us. And I think, really, the core of this passage is all about reminding us not to do that. To stay strong in our faith faith being that which we can't really see. The hope that Jesus is going to come back and to put everything right, because I believe he will. It's already started to happen. It's already started to happen in my life, where once I was a drug addict and a self-harmer, and now I'm not. But God's not just in the business of, of taking away the negative. He's in the business of giving us the positive as well. It's not just about not doing what we used to do. It's about becoming real humans, embracing true humanity in love and service. It's taking away the bad, but also giving the good as well. So, I've got a couple of questions really, just to get you thinking. I know it can be a little bit boring sitting down and listening to somebody talk at you. So, question. When do you ever feel hard done by, hard pressed or just like life is really, really tough? What are the situations that go on in your lives that make you feel like that, that would kind of lean towards despair? I'm going to give you just a, a few moments just to think. This time tomorrow, you might be in work, you might be in a school, you might be in your family home. Might be traveling across the country, might be in all sorts of situations. But what is it in those situations that would lean you towards despair, to lose that hope? Because in a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you, and if it's appropriate, just to share just a little insight so that we can pray that faith, hope, and love be be increased in your life. That you'd be reminded of this gospel power again. Just take a moment to think about that. For me, family situations usually rank pretty high in these kind of uh, difficult situations. It's when I feel uh, kind of hard pressed when I talk to my sister, who's um, the only member of my immediate family who's not a Christian. And um, you know she's trying to work through some issues in her life, and and often I'm the kind of I can be the person that represents Jesus to her, and when she's kicking back at God, she kicks back at me, and I kind of I receive some of that. I wonder how long. How long? I'm working at a Christian um, Christian charity, and. Um, I talk to some people about that, and they say, oh, that must be amazing. You're working with Christians, and, and it is, and I forget that sometimes. And then other times I think, ah, this does my head in because you're meant to be Christians. This is, this is meant to be better than this. This is the kingdom of God, people. And then I remember that actually I'm part of what makes it difficult sometimes. Again, I forget that it's not necessarily about where we are. It's about where we're heading. And sometimes we act fully like Jesus is in control and we trust him with everything. And other times we don't and things get really tough, don't they? And maybe that you uh that you try and talk to people in your workplace about Jesus and they're just not that interested. In fact, they seem quite resilient to it. That can be really frustrating and really difficult, can't it? You're trying to share the love of God and it's like people don't want to know. How crazy is that? When you turn to the person next to you, and just for you know, a few minutes, just share if it's appropriate some of the stuff that's going on. If life is good for you at the moment, I don't want you to feel bad. But I suspect that most people here are going through some sort of difficulty. Life is never straightforward. So yeah, turn to the person next to you and just share a little bit about some of the kind of the difficulties that you're facing. Another question for you. If you're talking and you're sharing, please continue to do so. But another question to kind of add on to the back of that. How do those situations make you react? How do those difficult situations make you react? When you're feeling hard-pressed, what comes out? You can just kind of tag that onto kind of talking about um, some of the situations that you face or that you might face this coming week. So... There's a good bit of banter going on there, so please carry on. But yeah, think about and talk about, how does it make you react? What are some of the kind of the traits that come out when you're in those situations? Good. It's really encouraging to hear people sharing and talking. If we start to bring those conversations to a close, that would be really, really helpful. I'll take all the noise as a positive thing, rather than you were just glad that I wasn't talking and wanted to, uh, to fill the space. So to kind of, to draw this into a bit of a conclusion and to work out what we can take away, so, for this time tomorrow, wherever we find ourselves in the various contexts that we represent, it's important that we stay strong in this faith, hope, and love, remembering the gospel that God is alive and kicking today, so that we can act like these nurses tenderly caring for our own children, or these, you know, fathers who um, who encourage and pleading with their children to live a better life as Paul puts it, so that the people that we come into contact with will actually be affected by our faith, hope, and love. And it's really important to remind ourselves continually day by day, because we're just forgetful people, aren't we? I certainly am. Forgetful people. So this time tomorrow, remember the faith, hope, and love that you have in the gospel because of Jesus. And remember that in the end, you only have to answer to God. And although that might be scary, it's actually a good thing because we can trust him. We can trust him to, to be fair with us. But more than that, I think we can trust him to be gracious and merciful with us as well. Let's put our trust in him and certainly not in anything else.